one. We have begun our study of the book of Acts with a sort of a summary overview. And uh, my purpose is to get into the first chapter here, draw attention to the 40 days that our Lord spent with his disciples before or to the point of his ascension. And that's what we see in the first 11 verses here. So let's begin reading verse 1. We'll read down through verse 11. Luke writes, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And this is the word of God. It's the word of his grace. May it build us up today. Luke, as he begins his work here, speaks of something he wrote before. Just by way of introduction, he says the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The word that he uses there, it's translated composed, it's made. The idea is something creative in terms of a literary composition. As we understand uh, the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke, it was addressed to the same person. And it really is summarized by what Luke says here. He says about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And you notice the words to heaven are in italics. Luke here is referring to the Gospel of Luke. He's writing to the same individual. I believe that's how Theophilus should be taken, an actual individual whose name is Theophilus. Um, As you look back, if you want to take a look back at Luke chapter 1, see the reference there as Luke addresses him. 
there he speaks of him as most excellent Theophilus. Luke chapter 1 and verse 3. We'll start in verse 1. You can see how he describes how he came to write this gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. And here it is, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You might be able to guess this, but Theophilus means God lover, Theo, God, Phyllis, related to the word phileo, means to love. Some surmise that Theophilus was just kind of a generic name for anyone who loved God. But the fact that he says most excellent there points to the possibility, I think the likelihood, that this is just a wealthy patron that is actually funding Luke's writing of both the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, as well as the book of Acts. And Luke's purpose to listen to the eyewitnesses or to receive those things handed down and then to write. And the Gospel, of course, that Luke wrote includes the events surrounding the birth and the life of the forerunner, which is essential to the Gospel message as far as Uh, how God laid things out. There would be somebody who would come and announce the coming of the Messiah. That, of course, was John the Baptist. And then proceeding, he then gives us an account of the virgin birth and then the beginning of the ministry of Christ to both, both teach and preach the gospel and, of course, all the events of the gospel that unfold. The baptism by John the Baptist, his being tempted by the devil, his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, All of his teaching and healing, his casting out of demons, and then obviously it moves forward, as every gospel does, to the death by crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Someone described gospels as uh, the genre of gospels as a passion narrative with an extended introduction, a story of the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, but then leading up to that, giving certainly a sense of who Jesus was and what he taught. And Luke's gospel follows that. Luke records not only those details, but he also includes what he includes here in Acts chapter 1, the ascension. The very end of Acts, which we'll take a look at later, is a record, even some more precision of what we see in verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11, Jesus ascending into heaven. Luke chapter 24 records that. But this is how Luke summarizes it. Look at verse 2 in Acts chapter 1. First account I composed, so Theophilus, or Theophilus, about all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, and then it adds the words, to heaven. And it's that phrase, taken up, that tells us that Luke's gospel points from the beginning of Jesus' ministry until the day that Jesus was taken up. It actually bookends what Luke was communicating in his gospel. It's not to say that he minimized in any way the cross or the crucifixion, the resurrection. Even in this chapter, even in these few verses, he's going to draw attention to that. But that kind of gives you a summary. And remember, 
As we looked at a summary of the book of Acts, we understand that when Luke says in verse 1 about all that Jesus began to do and teach, that there's more to come because Jesus has begun, but he's not done acting in the life of the church. He's going to ascend into heaven, but the events that unfold, not only in chapter 1 with the choosing Matthias, but also in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost unfolds because Christ is from the right hand of the Father acting. And you could say, just like the gospel records the fulfillment of promises that God had made regarding the Messiah, there are more promises that God has made that are being fulfilled through the book of Acts. One person called the book of Acts a theological history, which it is, a narrative dominated by speeches, and you could look through the book of Acts and see a lot of different speeches, but then the last thing this person said is it's a narrative of fulfillment, of God fulfilling his purpose, his plan, as the spread of the good news goes beyond Jerusalem to the world. This is not something new in one sense that is taking place. This is just the unfolding of God's purpose to make the gospel known, to, to make the Messiah known. And of course, there are things that are being fulfilled within the first few chapters that you could say were foretold long before, or some that were told just in Jesus' own ministry. And I think some of these you'll recognize. Remember, he said to his disciples that the helper would be coming, the spirit would be coming. He gave extended teaching in John 14 through 16 about the helper who the Father will send in my name. The helper is coming, the Holy Spirit is coming, the paraclete, as he's sometimes called. He also told them that they would do works. His disciples would do works. In fact, he said greater works. John 14, 12, that same section, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. So who are the actors in the book of Acts? Well, Jesus is, because he's acting from heaven. The Spirit is, because he is empowering the church, and then there are those who are the apostles, the disciples who are acting, and of course there are miracles in the book of Acts, just as there were in the Gospels. Uh, and as we go through the book, I think we'll be uh, encouraged to see God testifying to his word by the miracles that are being done. It's not only those kinds of things, but even fulfillment of promises or statements in the Old Testament regarding uh, the circumstances that relate to Judas, the betrayer of Christ. Peter's going to argue later in this chapter that what happened to Judas, there are scriptural statements regarding what should take place following the death of this person. You see that later in the chapter in verse 20. He's quoting from the Psalms and justifying the taking of another apostle. So this is all as Luke introduces his writing here, his composition, the book of Acts, he's referring to the gospel. He's actually showing the bookends of that gospel. And then he's describing what you could say is the post-resurrection earthly ministry of Jesus. The post-resurrection earthly ministry of Jesus. Now we know Jesus ascended into heaven, but before he ascended into heaven, he was on earth. He was talking to his disciples. He was appearing to his disciples. 
Luke puts it this way. Look at verse 3. He says, to these, referring to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Unless we get too far ahead of ourselves here, can you just imagine what it would be like to be one of the apostles? To be there after the crucifixion, to be in fear thinking this could happen to me, to have not only yourself but these others who had followed Jesus in that same community, just filled with fear, doubt, wondering, unbelief, and then Jesus appears and he speaks to his disciples and he shows himself to them. And then he starts to do what he has done before in his earthly ministry. Notice what Luke says here before he says he's presented himself alive, that during this time, uh, it says after, end of verse 2, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Jesus not only rises from the dead, but he assumes that same posture with them, which of course he's their Lord, and he's giving them instructions. There's more to be done. The disciples, remember, met in a secret room. They're in the upper room there without Thomas. Jesus appears and he proclaims peace to them. And then Thomas comes and he proclaims peace again. And then he's giving them, as he appears to them, instructions, guidance. There's more to do. There's more to be done. He had discipled them. He had taught them. He's continuing to teach them. He's continuing to give them guidance. And he's doing so, according to verse 2, by the Holy Spirit or by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, risen again by the Spirit, by the command of the Father, is now giving direction to the apostles as he's presenting himself alive. That word that's translated, given orders there, is translated commanded in verse 4. So among the different commands that Jesus gave to his disciples, one of the commands is found in this chapter. There are other commands that Jesus gave during his post-resurrection ministry. Uh, We don't know all that he said, but we do get insight from Peter's sermon when he was at the household of Cornelius later in the book of Acts. He says that Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is giving orders about the waiting, waiting for the Spirit. Acts chapter 1, Peter says he was also giving orders about what to proclaim, what to preach. And whether it was commandments regarding preaching of the gospel or the commandment to wait at Jerusalem, Jesus is acting as you would expect. The risen Lord, the head of his church, giving directions to his apostles as they preached the gospel, as they served him as sent ones. That's what the word apostle means. Sent ones out according to his purpose. He's directing. He is in charge. He is the Lord. We know as well that during this time, he's giving the Great Commission. Go preach the gospel to every creature, Mark chapter 1. Make disciples of all the nations, Matthew chapter 1. 
Repentance and remission of sins must be preached to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, Luke chapter 24. As the Father has sent me, so send I you, or I am sending you. My implication is you're going. This is a command. This is direction. This is Christ. This is the commander. This is the one who's leading this this process, you could say, or this continued work of God in this generation to make the gospel known. So what are they doing during this time? They're occupied with listening to the Lord. Obviously, first of all, recognizing that it is the Lord. That draws us to the second point here. In addition to continuing to give this authoritative instruction during this earthly ministry, he's also presenting himself alive. By implication, he had died. This is a reference to the resurrection. Notice it says, after his suffering... That's a reference to really kind of a broad general term that refers to all of the suffering of Christ from the time that he was in the garden suffering in prayer to the time of the betrayal and the arrest in the garden to the time of the trial that he faced and then the persecution that came his way, the slaps in his face, the pulling out of his beard, as Isaiah says, the scourging eventually by the Roman soldiers the mocking and shame that he endured prior to then being crucified on the cross with his hands pierced, his feet pierced, his brow pierced with that crown of thorns. They're mocking him, shaming him on the cross until the point that he died. But when he presented himself alive to his disciples, and not just once, but repeatedly, He gave them what you could say, it's translated here, convincing proofs. Another translation has many infallible proofs. One person described it as any extremely convincing factual evidence that establishes the truth of something. Another person described it as the strongest logical evidence that a subject was capable of receiving. And it's used that way not just here, but in other Greek literature. The the phrase there, many convincing proofs, is strong evidence. Undeniable. Forty days. Appearance after appearance after appearance. And as he appears, what's he doing? And of course, you think in terms of the appearances, there one writer suggested there are ten. The women at the tomb... Mary Magdalene, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Peter in Jerusalem, the ten disciples without Thomas, and then Thomas with them, seven disciples fishing in Galilee, John chapter 21, eleven disciples in Galilee, Matthew 28, 500 persons at once, Paul tells us in the book of Acts, excuse me, in in, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, and then James also, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, And, of course, he's here in uh, this chapter appearing to his disciples. We're not sure all the circumstances other than we know this is the day of his ascension because in verse 9 it says after he had said these things. So 10 plus this one, many convincing proofs. By the time he ascends into heaven, they had seen him, they had heard him, they had touched him, him. Remember he told Thomas, touch me. Reach here and touch my hands and 
here's my side, touch my side. They ate with him. This is all tangible, tactile, auditory, visible evidence repeatedly that Christ is alive. This was essential to those who would be witnesses. This is essential for those who are going to preach the gospel. And John, of course, says that in 1 John, that their hands had handled him. They had seen him, and that was important, not only for the truthfulness of the resurrection, but later because there were claims that Jesus had not truly become a man, that he wasn't true humanity, which of course was false, but as you read through the Gospels and look at the book of Acts, there are times where Peter is elaborating on the fact that we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There was evidence that he was alive. So it's these convincing proofs over a period, notice that, verse 3, over a period of 40 days, he's giving them evidence of his resurrection, and then he's continuing to teach them. Look at the end of the verse and speak to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus as he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it's near. He's telling those who observe his miracles as they claim that it was the work of Satan and he said that the kingdom of God had come to them. It was evidence because the king was present. He was acting, expelling the work of the devil, doing the work of God. And so Jesus here is teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting, down in verse 6, there's another reference to the kingdom. And we'll come to that a little bit later. But the kingdom occupied much of Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry. And I think as you read through the book of Acts, it's the kingdom that continues to be a focal point as the gospel is preached. Why is that the case? Well, part of understanding the kingdom is knowing the king. When we say Christ, we're saying anointed one. When you say Messiah, you're saying anointed one. Anointed for what? Prophet, yes, he spoke the truth. Priest, yes, he offered the perfect sacrifice. But king, the son of man, as the Old Testament presents the son of man, and Jesus' favorite term for himself, the son of man is a universal king. And so the king of the kingdom would be part of the subject, and then God's purposes for the kingdom. I don't want to take too much time considering this, because this is something we could spend a lot of time on, and I want to continue to look at what's happening in this chapter. But as you see the book of Acts unfold, there are references to the preaching of the kingdom. And let's just look at two of them. Don't go over to Acts chapter 20. Paul has in Acts chapter 20, been to Ephesus. He has preached the gospel there. He's trained up disciples. He's taught the leadership of the church. As he preached the gospel, summarized in verse 21, speaks about how he taught to them, verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, 
Down in verse 25, he says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So how does Paul describe his ministry there as he preached repentance towards God and faith in Christ Jesus? He talks about it in terms of the preaching of the kingdom. Take a look at Acts chapter 28. And this is, I guess, more relevant to our focus on the picture in the book of Acts with regard to the kingdom and the preaching and the teaching regarding the kingdom, at the end of the book of Acts, look at what Paul's doing. Jesus was preaching, teaching the kingdom. He was talking about the kingdom in his post-resurrection ministry. And Paul, when he finally gets to Rome, capital of the world at that time, at least recognized as the Roman capital, verse 30 says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus, universal king, Christ, with all openness, unhindered. I'm just adding the words universal king in there because he is preaching about the king. He's preaching about the kingdom. He's preaching about God's purpose. And that's what's occupying, if you turn back to Acts chapter 1, the mind of the disciples... And if he's preaching again about the kingdom of God, you can imagine they're thinking about it. They would have questions about it. Before we come to that, there's something else that God is about to do that he'd been talking about doing, that Jesus had been promising, that John the Baptist had been preaching. Verse 4 says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said you have heard or you heard of from me. And I'll stop there and just say without going to all the passages, when Jesus says, which you heard from me, where does that take you in your mind in terms of the Gospels? What other passages would you say are extended teaching about the Holy Spirit? Well, John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. Jesus spoke of the Spirit at other times, sometimes in somewhat parabolic language. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. John says this, he was talking about the Spirit who had not yet come. That's in John 7. So Jesus had been in his ministry of preaching and teaching at different times referring to the Spirit, even rejoicing in the Spirit, in his own Spirit, and what the Spirit was doing. But then he gave extended teaching to the disciples about the one who would come, the helper, the paraclete, who the Father will send, he says in John fourteen twenty six, in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's John 14, 16. John 15, or that's 14, 26. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. And then what I would say is the more extended teaching. Turn over just a few pages, John chapter 16. And look at verse 7.
the mention of the Spirit was meant to be a comfort. It's a promise here to encourage them that he was not going to go away and leave them without help, without comfort. John 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, or the paraclete, the one, if you think about that Greek word, it's the one who comes alongside. He is a helper. He is a comforter. He is an advocate. He's all those things, and that's why some have said that the translation of that word is difficult because he does all those things. If you think just exclusively in terms of comfort, he does more than that. So he says, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, this tells us this is a person, a person of the Trinity, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's a wonderful teaching there about the Trinitarian ministry. Everything that the Father has belonged to Christ. Jesus takes what belongs to Christ and then discloses it. So it's God's message. The persons, all the persons of the Trinity are involved giving that message to the apostles and then the apostles are proclaiming a message from God, all three persons. But it's the Spirit who's coming. And this is something that they had heard from Jesus. Yes, John 14 through 16. Even going back to the ministry of John the Baptist, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That was a foretelling of the coming of the Spirit. One more passage, Acts chapter 11. Moving forward in the book of Acts. Peter is recollecting his preaching to the household of Cornelius as they came to Christ and the Holy Spirit came upon them just as it did with the Samaritans, just as it did with the Christians there in Jerusalem. Look at what Peter says here. Verse 15, he's talking about that scene. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. He's talking about Pentecost. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says there, how he used to say. This is something that Jesus had been telling them about, that he'd given them explicit teaching about. Something that God is about to do that they need to give great attention to. The Spirit is coming. Need to wait for the Holy Spirit. Need to wait at Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
they had understood some, they certainly hadn't understood by, in terms of experience, but they'd understood that the Spirit was coming. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. And he recollects that very scene, John baptizing with water, John the Baptist, and the promise that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, not many days from now. This is part of the fulfillment of God's plan. It was necessary to empower them that the gospel might be proclaimed. And so he's reminding them of the coming spirit. He's telling them to wait at Jerusalem. And they're going to follow his instruction. I believe as you look at verse 12 and following down through the end of the chapter, they are waiting. They're not just twiddling their thumbs, waiting for God to do what he's going to do. When he says wait, they're actually anticipating eagerly God's working by sending the Spirit in prayer. We're going to look at that later, verses 12 through verse 14. They're devoting themselves to prayer in anticipation of this great work of God. That's what waiting implies. That's what waiting indicates. When we speak about waiting upon God, we're not talking about just twiddling our thumbs, passing our time, but actually anticipating with faith what God is about to do. And this is what Jesus is telling them to do. And you can imagine, again, the disciples here, they know Jesus has said he's going to go away. They know that the Spirit is coming. They see that he's alive. He's giving them orders. And he's been talking about the kingdom. So what's going to happen with the kingdom? And it's interesting. If you look at verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, the tense of the verb there, is imperfect, and the idea is they continually were asking him. It was when they got together, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? Is this going to happen? And here's the question, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And what I would suggest is what Jesus is doing here in response to the question is he's guiding them to focus on God's immediate purpose for them. He's guiding them to focus on God's immediate purpose for them. Now, the disciples in their question reflect an understanding that some have said is mistaken. Someone said it this way, many conclude that this question indicated a complete misunderstanding of the nature of Christ's kingdom, reflecting a preoccupation with a mere temporal rule. Is that the case? I think you'd have to say, how did Jesus answer this question? And Jesus was not afraid to give rebukes. Right? He would rebuke them for their lack of faith. He would rebuke them for their lack of understanding. He would rebuke them for their lack of prayer. Jesus doesn't give a rebuke here so much as he gives them guidance as to what they should be focused upon. Look at verse 7. It says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And the same author said it must be noted that Christ's answer did not say that there would be no literal kingdom. 
He merely said that the time of establishment would not be revealed to them. You understand what I'm talking about? The geopolitical nature of this kingdom, God's kingdom on earth, ruling on the throne of David from Israel, Christ as king. He's king over that nation. That nation is the highest of all the nations. Christ is ruling over all the nations. Isaiah prophesied of a time when the nations would come up to Jerusalem and say, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's go to Jerusalem and hear his law. And you read through the prophets. You look at the promises of the Old Testament and there is an anticipation of God's kingdom on earth through God's Messiah whom he had appointed. And notice their question, by the way. Did you notice the way that they worded it? Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? There was a Davidic king. Solomon was his son. There was a kingdom that was not universal, but it was like that. And God had made promises to David that one of his sons would come and sit on the throne forever. We're talking about the Davidic kingdom. And isn't it something that even the Gospels point out, that Christ was the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is a king by right of that nation. You can read through the New Testament and see references within the Gospels, the Epistles, even Revelation, to the significance of David. Jesus is the king over a Davidic kingdom. A Davidic kingdom which would reign over all of the earth. And their question is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And they don't even know at this point, careful, they don't even know that there's going to be a millennium. In other words, we think in terms of that earthly kingdom of a thousand years. It was not yet until Revelation, when John sees Revelation, that that knowledge of a millennium, a thousand years, would come. They just knew of a time coming, blessed like no other, under Christ the King, where there was going to be a reign of Christ, and this world is going to be like nothing you've ever seen. The knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. What a time when there's going to be peace, because the Prince of Peace is reigning upon the earth. So Jesus here is not rebuking them, he just says it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is not rebuking them, he's not correcting this literal futuristic expectation, he's just guiding them to what is at hand, and what is at hand is the coming of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about the king to all the nations because that's his kingdom. All the nations. Ask of me, Psalm 2 says, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance, the nations for your inheritance. You will rule them with a rod of iron. There's the expectation that Christ would come and he would have rule over all the nations. Now we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as the apostles here, and that is a continued focus on what God is going to do in the future so much that we're not paying attention to what we need to be doing now. And there are those who 
get preoccupied with the future teaching of Scripture, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be occupied with it, but we shouldn't be preoccupied with it, trying to match circumstances in the Middle East with what the Scripture says so that we can find out how things come together, and I know the date or the time or the exact way in which this is all going to be fulfilled. There's enough in the Word of God to give us instruction, to give us guidance. We know to a certain extent, as, as God has given us that revelation, He didn't give it to us for no reason. As we start to explore that future teaching, we realize what kind of a person we need to be now in light of what God is going to do. But we cannot, we cannot just have our, our head and our focus on those things when there are people all around us who need to know that Jesus is the king who's going to rule over that kingdom. Those who have not yet repented and turned from their sins. Those who are still lost in their darkness. They don't have any light. As we sang that last song this morning. And the whole world is lost in the darkness of sin. Praise the Lord that he opens the eyes of people. That here he's giving his disciples instruction. It's not for you to know. Here's what you need to focus on. And he unfolds in verse 8 the details of their gospel witness. He unfolds the details of how the spread of the gospel will go. Notice how he says it, verse, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. First thing I want to point out as you look at this section is obviously it's the power that comes from the Holy Spirit that enables them to have this witness to the world. Twelve, right now it's eleven, they're about to choose a twelve, but twelve, along with the other disciples that would join with them to empower all of them to reach the world. That's a powerful influence. That's the Holy Spirit of God, who would empower them collectively to give the gospel boldly, but also individuals, and that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. There are times where someone stands up right in front of the leadership of the nation and boldly proclaims Christ. That was the Spirit of God in Stephen. When Paul is speaking to the people who had just tackled him, wanted to arrest him there in Jerusalem, and he starts speaking to them in their native language, and they start listening up, and he gives powerful testimony to the gospel, that was the Spirit working through him. And by way of application, it's the same Spirit who we have to empower us for witness. That's what he's there for. It's not the only thing that he's there for, but he's there for that. And so we can't omit our responsibility and our privilege, really, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But Christ here is unfolding the details of their gospel witness. It is Holy Spirit empowered, first part of the verse, and then they are going to be, he says, you shall be my witnesses. My witnesses. Witnesses, I believe, to Christ, to the truth about Christ, certainly the gospel message of his life, his death, crucifixion, his rising again, all of those details. What's interesting is the background to this phrase, witnesses, goes back to the book of Isaiah, where God says to Israel, restored, believing Israel, that they will be his witnesses. 
Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44, there's three times where God speaks of Israel being his witnesses to the world. I just ask the question, when else did it happen? It's not that Jonah wasn't. Jonah was in the Old Testament, but if you think about God's witnesses to the nations and the fact that here we are on another continent 2,000 years later, why is that? Well, we have apostolic witness. We have the truth of God's word written by the apostles that was spread throughout the world and spread through the centuries. Spirit-empowered, witnesses to the gospel of Christ, witnesses to Christ himself, that is, testifying that he exists, that he's real, that he's come in the flesh, that he's laid down his life as an offering for sin. He died upon the cross. He rose again so that all who believe in him might have life, forgiveness of sins. The 12 apostles. They began there the day of Pentecost. And of course there were others with them, but it's their witness that spread through the world. Yes, God can make much out of a little These are fishermen, publican, merchants. These are ordinary, everyday people. God is using to change the world as they give testimony to God. And so the apostles here are given, and let's not miss what he says, because what he says at the end of the verse would have likely caused them to ponder You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. We just think about Jerusalem, context of Jerusalem, what just happened at Jerusalem. Ruled by the Romans, also heavily influenced by the Sanhedrin, antagonistic to Christ. They just had him crucified. And that's where you're going to be witnesses first. You're going to be witnesses right here. And then Judea, where they also were seeking to kill Christ. And then Samaria, which crosses over an ethnic boundary. Remember, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't have any dealings with each other. They didn't like each other. They did have different theological beliefs. And then they just, you know, the Jews thought of the Samaritans as kind of a half-breed. They despised them ethnically. But Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to that group too. Why? Because he's a universal king. Because the king of Jerusalem is the king of all the earth. This is the city of the great king. His gospel is going to start there, and it's going to spread to Judea and Samaria, and then look at the rest. You could just use the word Gentiles there, but he says even to the remotest part of the earth, which means that it's not just the Gentiles as a people, but there's going to be a geographical expansion to Places far distant, even the islands in the Pacific and the Atlantic and wherever they could go to proclaim the good news. And it's wonderful to see in church history at times the gospel coming to those places and transforming those places. But that's the, that's the witness. That's how it's going to proceed. So what has Jesus done here in terms of his ministry post-resurrection, he's continued to give them authoritative instruction. He's given them infallible proofs that demonstrated he is 
risen again. He's continued to teach them about the kingdom of God. He's reminded them of the coming spirit. He guides them to focus on God's immediate purpose. He unfolds for them the details of their gospel witness. And lastly, but not least, he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. Raising up his hands, Luke says at the end of the book of Acts, or the end of the gospel of Luke. Blessing them as he goes. Ascending into a cloud, again, before their very eyes. Did you notice that in verses 9 through 11? The references to their sight. After he had said these things, verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. So now their attention is these men. And they talk about them looking too. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. There's all these references to the fact that they have witnessed a major event in, you could say, not just gospel history, but biblical history. A man, you could even say world history, a man entering into heaven in his body. We believe in the bodily resurrection, but it's also the bodily ascension of Christ. He rises. I don't know what you imagine if you're Looking at the scene there, Jesus is done saying what he's saying, and then just suddenly he's lifted up. That's the language there in verse 9. He's lifted up. The cloud receives him out of their sight. There's really so much here. We should probably spend some more time on it. But they are witnesses now to the ascension of Christ into heaven, where no doubt he's greeted by myriads of angels. He has accomplished redemption. The psalm says... Lift up, you everlasting doors, be you lifted up. The, the king of glory is coming in, and there is Christ coming into heaven. He prayed in John 17, give me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And as he enters into heaven, no doubt to the praises of the angels and the praises of the saints triumphant, he's leaving this company of his followers there. I love what Matthew Henry says. He says he knew the way. He knew the way. He had been there before. He had come from there. He has come down, and now he's ascending to the Father to accomplish his purpose. This is really vindication that he is who he said he was. He is the very Son of God. He's the Messiah of God. Second person of the Trinity. This is his glorification, his exaltation, his entrance into heaven. If we had time to explore, one writer did, he wrote of the theological significance of the ascension. I'll just read these, and at some point we need to consider this wonderful event. He identified eight things that took place as Christ ascended into heaven. The ascension, first of all, marks the end of Christ's self-limitation. Came to the earth, recognized as a man just another one of the ordinary men of Israel, but obviously ascending into heaven, they knew who he was. And here he's exalted, glorified to the right hand of the Father. It is the occasion, this writer said, of Christ's exaltation and glorification. It does mark the entrance of resurrected humanity into heaven. 
that ought to give us encouragement if he's the forerunner. Because the forerunner means there are more who are going to be running in, coming in. It marks the beginning of Christ's new ministry of intercession and advocacy. Now Christ is going to be seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, being our advocate with the Father. It allowed Christ to send the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us, right? If, if Jesus didn't go into heaven, he could not send the Comforter. That's why someone said Easter, without the ascension, Easter is incomplete. Pentecost is impeded. And in connection with what else Jesus says, the second coming is impossible because he hasn't gone anywhere. This also serves as the opportunity for Christ to give us, his church, spiritual gifts. It allows the preparation of our future heavenly home. Remember what he said to his disciples in John 14? I am going to prepare a place for you. And lastly, don't miss this. This anticipates his return. This is what the angels were saying. Verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So this is a promise of his second coming. An anticipation of his return. These angels are proclaiming it and we believe it. Do you believe it? He is coming again. All of that, and this is all for the, this company that is now just waiting, anticipating. And I think it's good as we're going through the book of Acts to just kind of get a sense of what's taking place. Something's going to happen. Something just happened. But something's going to happen. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to change the world. It has changed the world. Praise the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow we praise you. We thank you that you sent your son, that he did come to this world, that he did accomplish redemption, and that he returned to your right hand. Lord Jesus, even now as you behold this congregation and these people, we thank you that you have risen, that you are indeed Lord, universal king, and today we've met to praise you, to give you honor, to give your word attention. And we just ask, Lord, as the builder of your church, to build us. Strengthen us through the truths that we have considered. Strengthen us, Lord, according to your word. Help us to believe these things. And Lord, for the one who has not yet come to understand and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Open their heart, even as you did with Lydia. You opened her heart to receive the things that were spoken by Paul. We pray that you do that heart-opening work as you did with the Apostle Paul. Lord, you opened the eyes of his understanding. You gave him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you do that work as well. And we thank you for the confidence that we have as we ask that. Because we know that... Holy Spirit, you are here for that very purpose, to convince sinners and convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And you partner with us as a co-witness of the truth that's being proclaimed. So beyond any spoken word this morning, we trust, Holy Spirit, that you are at work in the hearts of people who have heard 
Help them not to resist. Help them to submit. Even today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.